What's up, nerds? Welcome back to another fantastic episode of Boss Science, a podcast where I talk to wicked smart people and learn all about the latest and greatest scientific research going on in Boston. I'm your host, the glamorous Grace Ingalls. And in today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Professor Katya Bertoldi and PhD candidate David Melisson from the Bertoldi Research Group and learning all about their amazing work creating space-exploring snake robots, kirigami-inspired footwear, and an explosion-powered soft robot. So, you guys ready for some boss-ass science? Welcome to the show. Oh, hello, my lovely listeners, my gorgeous geeks, my fabulous fans. I'm thrilled you guys are here to listen to another awesome episode of Boss Science, because I'm not going to lie, I'm feeling stoked about today's episode. There's so much good stuff to talk about today. So many listener questions to go over, so many collaborators to meet, so many robots. Before we get into the explosion-powered awesomeness that is today's episode, just a little bit of business up top. First and foremost, I want to shout out the newly established Boss Science Patreon, where you, the listener, can donate to help support this wonderful show and in exchange get the chance to hear blooper reels, see behind-the-scenes pictures and videos, and even get your very own personalized Boss Science gift. And with your donation of just $1 a month, you automatically get a shout-out in the next podcast episode. So, today I get the pleasure of thanking the fabulous Mark Ingalls, the hottest Chris Michelli, the marvelous Catherine Ingalls, and the gorgeous Brittany Pack, for being my first ever patrons. Your guys' support means so much to me. It helps make the show become better, it gets episodes produced faster, and it makes me cry actual tears of joy. If you want to support the show yourself and get your name heard on the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash science and make me a happy woman. If giving money isn't in the cards for you right now, don't worry. You can still support the show and get your name read on an episode by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. Each episode of Boss Science, I pick a new review to read and to gush over live on the show. Here's a fresh one from listener TorsFan11. Grace is fantastic. She explains the science so perfectly and has really fantastic resources. Great way to get into science. Thanks, TorsFan11. I'm so glad you enjoyed the science in the show. I'm here to help everyone get as pumped for science as I am. Because, in my opinion, if you don't love science, you just don't get it yet. Okay, thank you for your patience. I know, it's hard. So let's get back to what we're all here for. Science! So, if this is your first ever episode of Boss Science, well, might I say, great choice in podcast, you won't be disappointed. I actually heard from a verified source that this is the number one rated science podcast, according to my mom. 
But before you listen to today's amazing episode, I highly recommend taking a step back and listening to part one of episode four. This will give you all of the background that you need on metamaterials and soft robotics to understand today's show. And you'll hear the first part of my interview with PhD candidate David Melisson. We talk all about the Bertoli Lab's amazing Kirigami snake bot, inflatable origami structures, and air-actuated jumper robots. Trust me, you're going to love the episode, and today's topics will make way more sense after you listen to it. So go ahead, run along, and give episode four part one a listen, and I'll be right here waiting for you until you get back. What's that? You're done listening? And, oh, you loved it? I thought you might. Okay, that means you guys are officially ready for part two of Robots, Structures, and Art. Oh my. Today, we're going to be starting off with the long-awaited answers to your listener questions. Before I interviewed the Bertoldi Lab, I gave you all a little blurb about the many different research projects going on there. And you guys sent me some fantastic questions to ask during the interview. Y'all are so smart. So let's jump back into the interview with David to answer your listener questions. So we'll start off, since we were just talking about the little starfish actuator, um, I have a question from Mark, and he asked if this little starfish, he asked if it's correct to assume that it can only travel in one direction without changing the configuration of the tubes on top. So th- that is correct. I guess the, the idea, now you can also change the tubing to get a different sequence, and potentially that sequence could I mean, you know, going left instead of going straight or going backward instead of going forward. But certainly that actuator with these tubes, if you pressurize it, this is sort of optimized for that crawling motion. That leads perfectly into his next question, because Mark also asked if it's possible that the starfish could carry a small switching device on top that could remotely change the configurations of the tubes possibly allowing the starfish to change directions remotely. That's a great idea, actually. I don't think the, the researcher thought about that idea for the project, but that's quite interesting to change the length on the go. I can see that as a real possibility for sure. Change the length on the go or change the pressure profile on the go also. It'd be interesting to get these different sort of paths or different informations for sure. I love it. Okay, so it's a possibility. My favorite answer. Um, so then his last question was, are they selling any of these uh, starfish for Christmas? <laughs> no, no, unfortunately, no. All right, I'll have to wait and see when that comes out on the market. Another listener, Ben Hawks, he asked, are there any specific uses that you had in mind for the designs that are already produced or are these more of a proof of concept? I would say that in our lab, we're more interested about the the physics, right, of what we uh, are doing, sort of the interesting idea behind, you know, these geometric properties that are coming in soft robotics or the organic projects that I've shown or Karagami. In terms of commercial application, I don't think we we focus much on them. I guess our go-to application and motivation behind the work is always kind of these emergency robots that can adapt to unstructured environment where, again, you don't have any idea of what the environment is. So you want to be able to adapt on the spot 
to the environment. And this is done through the compliance of these robots, right? They can kind of deform easily to adapt to the environment. And another part of what we're doing, so a lot of people in the lab are involved in application with humans, right? So human interactions where these soft robots, they can be used, you know, one example, again, it's not a commercial application, but more of a medical application to assist people suffering from disabilities or, uh, you know, recovering from stroke where they have trouble grasping. So one student in the group, uh, she worked on the uh, assistive glove that is basically these bending actuator that recreate the motion of your fingers. So it can help you grasp uh, a mug and by really adapting to your fingers and basically giving you the correct angle to grasp objects and the correct force also to grasp objects. So this is kind of another field of applications, I think, of these uh, soft robots that we basically, you know, have in mind when we maybe look more at the interesting ideas and interesting phenomenon rather than, you know, translate them to real world application. Sure. Yeah, I know there's a lot of different ways of approaching how to do scientific research. One of them is you have a problem that you're trying to solve, whereas another is you have an interesting idea and you see how far you can push that idea. And after you've created the idea, you can then think of real world applications for it. And I think that's exactly what you guys are doing. You have these really, really interesting concepts that you try to create new ways to use them or to design them. And then you'll end up finding uses along the way that you never thought of before. So I love that you guys have a proof of concept attitude towards it, but you also have a lot of thoughts for what it could be used for once it's been created. The last question I have, I think, on the soft robotics was from Kate. And Kate asks, can soft robots respond to any sort of stimuli? So can they respond to chemical or physical stimuli? Yeah, that's interesting. So now what we've discussed is uh, fluidic soft robots, right? Where you basically use a pressure source to inflate them. Well, this is just a subset of soft robotics. There's not a really strict definition also on soft robotics. So we see a lot of different works where the soft aspect of it is kind of, you know, a little bit subjective. But certainly there are soft robots that are triggered with magnetic fields. That is one thing. There are some soft robots that are triggered with heat, for instance, that uh, you get the, the different behavior. Also uh, uh, electric current. Also soft robotics that are, they're called, uh, you know, dielectric elastomers. So basically electric current and then you can actuate them. I love this question so much because this is something I never even thought about until Kate asked. Can soft robots respond to different types of stimuli? Such a simple question, and yet the answer is anything but simple. So traditionally, robots are powered by wired connections, meaning that they need to be connected to some sort of energy source, like a battery, in order to function. For example, take the robots that we heard about in part one. The Kirigami snake bot, the soft robot jumper, the starfish crawler. These robots all need to be connected to an air pump in order to generate movement. That's why they're called air-actuated soft robots. But there are a lot of researchers out there who are looking at how to make robots with stimuli-responsive materials. So materials that can change shape or behavior when they encounter a stimuli. This is a game changer in the field of soft robotics, because now these babies will get their motion not from a battery or from an air pump, but from the actual stimuli itself. So David mentions a few examples of the type of stimuli that soft robots can respond to. 
but I decided to do a little digging to learn more. And boy, howdy, am I glad I did, because these soft robots are amazing. Literally, any type of signal that you can think of, temperature, light, heat, magnetic field, pH, there's a soft robot out there that's been designed to respond to it. Let's take light, for example. Researchers at the National Taipei University of Technology in Taiwan have developed a tiny millimeter-sized soft robot that can transform its shape and role using only the power of a simple light beam. The magic of this robot all starts with a flat sheet of plastic coated in what's known as liquid crystal polymer networks, or LCNs for short. This is a super cool smart material that gives the robot its stimuli-responsive properties. If you were to look at a liquid crystal polymer network under the microscope, you would see a bunch of tiny crystals connected in long rows by a stretchy polymer string. It's basically like the microscopic version of that oh-so-classy beaded curtains that I wanted so badly in elementary school. These crystals are way cooler than the ones that you'd find on beaded curtains, because when activated by an external cue, light in this case, the crystals will actually change positions in their rows, which pulls on the polymer strings and results in a complete change in not only the network's shape, but its mechanical properties. Once the light is gone, the crystals will fall back into their original place, the polymer strings will relax, and the whole network will go back to normal. Wild. So the researchers first coat these LCNs onto thin plastic sheets, and then they cut tiny fringe petals onto either side of the plastic sheet. Then they roll up the sheet into a tube, and now you have light-activated petals on either side. When these petals are illuminated, they deform in predetermined ways, in this case, designed to push into the ground and thus push the robot forward. In this paper, the researchers were able to show that their light-powered rolling robots could be steered not only through a flat 2D obstacle course, but also up a ramp. With nothing but light, guys. It's actually blowing my mind. How are you not freaking out right now? My favorite thing about this project, though, is that these liquid crystal polymer networks, they can be designed to respond to not just light, but also to magnetic fields, to temperature, or even to humidity. The possibilities are endless. I won't lie. I went deep, deep, deep down this rabbit hole, and I found so many cool stimuli-responsive robots. I could spend an entire episode talking about them. But since our time is limited together, I'll restrain myself. Maybe I'll put some more examples of these soft robots in a Patreon post. Who knows? We'll see. Now, there is one more example that I'll talk about that David's about to mention. But you'll have to wait until later in the episode to get the deets on this one. I promise, though, it'll be worth the wait. Chemical reactions also, of course, are used. So if I go back a little bit of my project, the soft jumper that I was talking about. So here we're using, again, very slow air input to get the uh, buckling and then the, the jumping. There's another paper, and what they're using is, again, a chemical reaction where basically they have an explosion in the cavity. So they kind of fill their cavity with methane, I believe, and then they ignite and then it explodes. And 
they harness that energy to jump. So that was kind of also motivation of our work. Well, can we do this, you know, a little bit simpler without exploding? <laughs> yeah, limit the number of explosions in your device can uh, can be useful, I guess. <laughs> but certainly, yeah, there's a lot of ways of activating these soft robots. And I think they have all their pros and cons. Some of them, it's very easy to make them untethered. So that's very good. But then the challenge is, you know, can you do only one cycle? Chemical reaction, right? How do you reset it? So this is, you know, a little bit tricky. If you think of the uh, fluidic uh, soft robots, very easy to actuate and sort of inflate, deflate. You know, you can think of doing that repeatedly, but then, yeah, how do you make them untethered? That's kind of the challenge there. Okay. So there's a there's a give and take. You have to be, you know, selective in what you can do with these robots, depending on what you want them to have a final purpose for. So, but that's really exciting. I had no idea that there were these different types of soft robots that can respond to the environment. It's very, very cool. So I'll do just a few more questions, and these will be a little bit more on the Kirigami side and the deflatable structures. So Kate asked if these structures can be used to create a pop-up building. Now, what I've shown in the previous projects, so instead of making Kirigami balloons, another project is to make origami balloons, right? If you have bistability in, or multi-stability in your structure, so that means a structure that would switch between states where it's stable if you don't have any pressure applied in it or on it or any force applied on it, right? So it's happy there without any external load on it. And then you can sort of trigger that switch with pressure, then yeah, you can get uh, inflatable structures. And that's very promising, I think. And it's very nice because you think of, again, we discuss in an emergency situation, you get to the side, you get these very sort of compact shapes that can you know, be stacked and you can have a lot of them. And then you just need to inflate them, you snap them to a stable position, you remove the pressure, and then it's stable at the atmospheric pressure, you can enter you can enter them. That That's awesome. Yeah. I think that's exactly what Kate was asking. So it'll be very cool to tell her that, you know, you do indeed have these pop-up structures um, for the applications we talked about before. So last question, this comes from Chris, and he asks, uh, what are some real-world uses for either the Kirigami balloon or the snake bot? Right. So in terms of the snake bot, real world uses, I think the application of the motivation that I talked a little bit about is this sort of exploration robot, right? Again, if you think of, you can go a little bit bigger, you can go a little bit smaller. If you go bigger, maybe you can use it as a rover to explore, let's say, unstructured and very rough terrains, right? Maybe space exploration, maybe it's a little bit far-fetched, but it could be used for that. If you go smaller, again, this is kind of the, this uh, medical application, right? So a little robot that could navigate in your body. That's, that's the idea. I'm going to pretend that I didn't hear that because the idea of a miniature snake robot worming its way through my insides is actually my nightmare. I'd much rather imagine a giant snake bot crawling across the surface of Mars, scaring the absolute pants off of whatever aliens are hiding there assuming that the aliens wear pants. But guys, those were some boss-ass questions. Thank you so much for submitting them. And let's all give a big thank you to our first guest, David Melisson, who not only did an amazing job answering them, but also skipped a meeting with his coworker to do it, just for you guys. Don't worry, though, the fun isn't over yet, because up next, we're going to be talking to the head of the Bertoldi Lab, Professor Katya Bertoldi herself. 
So my name is Katia Bertaldi, and I'm a professor at Harvard in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. And I'm working at the interface between mechanical engineering, material science, and I would say probably applied physics and applied math are also involved. So it's really at the interface between different areas. And working at C School of Engineering and Applied Sciences has been pretty good because we only have basically, there are no departments. So it's a very cross-disciplinary type of place. And this particular, I mean, this is exciting for me because it gives me the opportunity to work with people in very different fields. Just another reason to love Boston. With so many wicked smart people all in one area, it would be a sin to only work by yourself. Professor Batoli doesn't need collaborators to be a badass, though. Since she started working at Harvard, she's been the recipient of the National Science Foundation Career Award and the American Society of Mechanical Engineers Hughes Young Investigator Award. But before she was an award-winning Harvard professor, Professor Bertoldi was just like everybody else, someone trying to figure out what the hell they want to do with their life. Yeah, so I was trained as a structural engineer, but to be honest, I never ended up building bridges and houses. And so what I'm passionate about and I'm excited by are structures. And what we try, we try to design structure where we can use geometry to achieve specific functionality. It might be to manipulate mechanical properties or to guide propagation of waves or to alter light, how light propagates, so these type of things. I was hoping I could ask you a little bit about your background. Like, where were you born and raised? What was your education? I know you mentioned you were trained as a structural engineer. So uh, how'd you get from there to here? Yeah, so I was born in Italy. I was raised in Italy. I grew up in Italy. I went to school there. <laughs> so after five years, basically it was time to choose college and I went for an engineering school. Um, typical Italian. So typically you choose whatever school is available in your town, hometown. And so engineering, there was structural, material engineering, and the third one was environmental. So these were the three tracks available. And I went for structural. Along the way, I realized that it was sort of boring. I mean, the city I grew up in, a small city up in the north, there are no huge construction. So all buildings are the same, you know, the three-story building. And designing them is quite simple. So I was like, oh man, this is going to be boring. <laughs> so when I finished, then my advisor asked me, why are you interested in a PhD? At the time in Italy, PhD was not at all popular. So it was only seen as a step toward academia. And I was not thinking about academia at all. But on the other hand, I was not really excited about going to the job market because I realized that it was not a job I enjoy. So I thought, okay, why not? It's just so in this way, it's just a way to avoid to do, I mean, what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, I understand. That's why I went for my master's. I didn't want to do the real world yet either. So I didn't want the real world. So it was cool. like, okay, if I go to get a job, pretty much that's the only job when I can apply my skills then. So with a degree in structural engineer, you can only be a structural engineer. It's not that sure. I can, you know, try to explore new paths. And yeah, so that's the way I went. So I went for a PhD and, you know, and then along the way, I followed the flow pretty much. And then at the end of the PhD, it was like, so I was like, all right, then either I go back to my, you know, the job I was supposed to start three years ago, or I mean, I get an opportunity to do a postdoc at MIT. So why not? I'm sure that's how everyone responds when they get the opportunity to do their postdoctoral research at one of the most prestigious universities in the country. Why not? So Professor Bertoldi packed up her life and shipped off to Boston. Boston. 
MIT, Professor Bertoldi joined the research group of Mary Boyce, where she focused on studying the properties of elastomeric structures. After her postdoc, she took a hot minute to work as an assistant professor in engineering at the University of Twent in the Netherlands, before turning right back around and joining the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard University, where she's been ever since. Since her move back to Boston in 2010, Professor Bertoldi has worked on literally hundreds of projects across all different areas of research, but all of them focusing on one common theme. One of the things I was hoping to ask you was about the different projects that you're working on. Do you have like a list of current projects that your lab is working on, just like little bullet points of what you guys are doing? I think all the projects we are working on are centered on structures. But then we look in a structure from very, very different point of views. And we are looking both at static properties, so what happens when we load them slowly, a dynamic property, what happens when, you know, we kick them. And we are looking at different types of functionality. So we are looking at, you know, manipulating surface properties. And so we have been using Kirigami for this a lot, so that we can, you know, they pop up, we can manipulate surface. We are looking at mechanical properties. We have been looking at Poisson ratio. We are looking at stiffness. How can we manipulate the stiffness in active ways? We are looking at how can we embed the structural element into robots, soft robots mostly to basically enhance their functionality. Also, we have been looking recently, for example, at biological systems, right? Like, for example, sponges. And this has been inspiration to try to understand what are the principal complex architecture that we see in this, the skeleton of the sponges. Great. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of different projects that you guys are working on. And as you mentioned, in lots of different areas. So... With all the projects that you are working on, and I'm sure that you worked on in the past, what project has had the biggest, quote unquote, real world impact that you've worked on? Yeah, the real world impact is a, is a good one, right? It's a very important one. It's also a tricky one because what we are doing, we are mostly exploring new concepts. Sure. So we are exploring new principles. And then when we are trying, we are trying to make a connection to a real world, right? But the connection is, you know, is it's at the very early stage. And I would say probably if you think about real application, recently the one that we use Kirigami, we put also Kirigami on the sole of shoes. So basically we have been using Kirigami for a while to manipulate friction. And now what we are doing, we are also attaching to the sole to so try to see whether we could help people walking on ice, for example, right? Because of frictional forces. And I believe this one is the closest we went to real application. Oh, Yes. You heard correctly, Kirigami Modified Shoes. Oh, I love it when the world of science meets the world of fashion. Check out Boss Science's very first episode, The Fabulous World of Functional Fibers, to hear how the future of fashion is almost certainly destined to come from the science lab. The Kirigami shoes that Professor Batoldi talks about has been designed to manipulate friction. But how does that work? Well, it's basically the same concept as our Kirigami snake bot. You start with a sheet of material, in this case, flexible steel, and laser cut dozens of scale-like shapes into the metal. Just like with the snake bot, when the Kirigami sheet is stretched, the cuts will pop out into three-dimensional spikes that can dig into the ground and create friction. With the snake bot, the scales will pop out when the balloon actuator inside the robot inflates. Whereas with the Kirigami shoe, the scales will pop out when the curvature of your shoe changes as you walk. So as you take a step forward and your foot bends and your heel comes up, 
the kirigami spikes on the sole will pop out and give you that extra friction. Then, when your foot flattens, the spikes fold back into the sole of the shoe, creating a smooth surface again. It's actually mesmerizing to watch the scales fold in and out into their two different shapes as the shoe is bent. If you guys saw the little teaser video I posted on Instagram a couple months ago, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. If you didn't see the video, that means you must not be following the show on Instagram. So hurry up and get over there so you don't miss another important video. The researchers who designed this Kirigami shoe had to go through a whole mess of both simulations and experiments to carefully choose the exact geometry and position of the cuts to create the best friction with the surface. But by George, they finally did it. When tested on all types of surfaces, including ice, wood, vinyl, even turf, the Kirigami shoe created 20 to 35% more friction than compared to both sneakers and winter boots. How amazing would these shoes be? There are so many people who, whether due to age, mobility disorders, or strokes, have an increased risk of slipping and falling. These type of injuries not only cost lives, but cost billions of dollars in medical bills every year. These shoes would be a simple and easy solution to so many problems. Of course, I want it for selfish reasons, because I live in Boston, and apparently nobody around here knows how to shovel their sidewalks. So every winter, all of that beautiful snow on the ground gets trampled down and turned into ice. And that turns into me eating shit on the ice while I walk to work. And it's happened so many times. No more. I'm sick of it. Shovel your goddamn sidewalks, people. God, it makes me sick thinking about it. It's almost September. Winter is coming. Oh, wow. And so now we are discussing these industries and try to see whether we can really get this system into real product. That would be amazing, especially in Boston. Lots of snow and ice. I don't know if that had any reasoning for your, your project there, but that would be really cool to get it. I love it. If I was an investor, I would go for it. Unfortunately, I'm not an investor, so uh, fingers crossed someone else sees that too. Do you have a favorite project that you've worked on over the years? I mean, many of them have been the favorite at different points of time, right? And this is what yeah. is good, right? You need to keep yourself excited. Right? We need to keep the group excited. So excitement keeps going on. So, I mean, you know, now, I mean, at every time, every point in time, there is a favorite project and it varies. And this good. It means, you know, we keep doing exciting stuff. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a favorite project now? You know, I won't tell the other projects that they're not the favorite, but... <laughs> I say now there are a couple of projects I'm pretty excited. So we have been looking at, for example, how we can use origami to realize large-scale deployable structures. So I'm quite excited by this collaboration with this design school to try to really make large structures. Awesome. That sounds really exciting. I love the um, the origami aspect of it. It is just beyond me. I don't know if you've ever tried origami before. Um, I have, and I'm terrible at it, so I can't imagine using that concept. Okay. What we do, we do engineering origami. So yeah, I know the frustration you describe describing, right? When you fold together a piece of paper. So we use laser cutter and, you know, and we create the engine. So we create panels and then we put them together with uh, very flexible engines. So still very frustrating, but it's a different type of frustration let's put in this. Uh, well, you have to, you know, vary your frustrations. Can only have too much of one. <laughs> Exactly. It's a different type of frustration. Do you have any specific collaborations that you're working on with other faculty at Harvard or other universities? 
I feel very fortunate to be at Harvard. I've been working with you know people in the robotics community, and this clearly opened new avenues for what I've been doing. Oh man, Katya, you have been a busy bee. Where do you find the time to do all of these collaborations, your own projects, teach and mentor students, take care of your kids? When do you sleep, woman? But don't ever stop, because it means more boss-ass science for us to learn about. And that's what I'm here for. So let's, as the youths say, spill the tea and talk about a few of these amazing collaborations that Professor Bertoldi has done. So first on the list is a collaboration with Professor George Whitesides, a member of the Kavli Institute for Bionanoscience and Technology at Harvard University. This project combines two of Professor Bertoldi's favorite topics, metamaterials and soft robotics. The whole focus of this research is to utilize the buckling of elastic materials to create movement. Now, buckling, if you've ever taken an engineering class, is normally a bad thing. Like, no engineering student has gone to another and said, Oh, I saw your bridge buckled today. Nice work, bro. This is because for most materials, like metal frames or concrete pillars, buckling, which is defined as the sudden bending or collapse of a structure due to compressive stress, normally causes permanent damage to a structure. However, the buckling of elastomeric materials, so materials that have elastic or rubber-like properties, is reversible. So if an elastomeric structure is designed properly, this buckling motion can actually provide new functions for the device, which is exactly what these researchers did. Keeping this buckling motion in mind, the team designed an elastomeric device that they call buckling actuator units. The actual device looks deceptively simple, just a vacuum tube leading into a rectangular block of rubber. I imagine it's the same type of material that's used to make those reusable silicon baking molds for making chocolates or candy. I personally have one that makes robot shapes, and it's awesome. But inside this seemingly simple elastomeric block, there are strategically placed air pockets, each separated by a buckling pillar. These buckling pillars are designed to buckle in a predetermined way. So when a vacuum is applied to this buckling actuator unit, the air will be sucked out of the pockets, the buckling pillars will do what they do best, buckle, and this buckling results in the entire silicon block changing shape. Then just release the vacuum in the tube, the air rushes back in, and the unit will pop right back into its original shape. Now, the coolest part about this little buckling actuator unit is that the researchers have designed the buckling periods to be shaped in such a way that when they buckle under vacuum, the center area of the entire unit will actually rotate as the air chambers collapse. Now, can you think of any way that we could use this rotation to our advantage? Well, the researchers sure did. It turns out that if you attach a rigid object to the exterior of the buckling unit, when the block collapses, the attached object will rotate along with the unit. And now, all of a sudden, this buckling unit can interact with the environment in an entirely new way. And the ways that you can use this rotation are endless. The researchers showed how they can add grippers to this buckling unit and created their very own air-actuated claw machine. You know the ones I'm talking about. 
they're in the arcade and you waste $15 on them trying to get a $2 SpongeBob plushie that you're going to throw away in six months. But my absolute favorite use for this rotating buckling actuator is when the team added little tiny wheels to the bottom of these rigid grippers, which means that when the buckling actuator collapses and rotates, the grippers move in, the wheels rotate, and the whole unit will scoot forward just a little. I watched the video that they included in the article demonstrating this little scooting movement, and guys, I was screaming. It's so freaking cute. I could not keep it together. I watched the video over and over and over, and I just shrieked the whole time. God, my downstairs neighbor probably hates me. Sorry, Connie. But seriously, I posted the video, go watch it, and scream along with me. It's amazing. But aside from creating super cute scooting robots, you guys can imagine how incredibly useful this air-powered robot could be. The possibilities are literally endless. I love it. Okay, guys, I'm sorry. I know I've been talking forever. Let me tell you about just one more project that Professor Bertoldi has collaborated on. Because, well, it's, it's just badass. So, in a collaboration with Dr. Robert Wood, who is both a Charles River Professor of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and a core faculty member of the Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard. Lots of titles. These group of researchers built one of the first 3D printed soft robots that can move autonomously, meaning that it doesn't need to be wired to an outlet or an air pump to make it move. Oh, and did I mention... It's powered by explosions. That's right. This is the famed combustion-powered soft robot that David talked about earlier in the episode. And if you thought it sounded cool then, just wait. It gets even cooler. So the actual body of this jet-fueled robot is made of two hemispheroids, which is just a fancy way of saying half of a sphere. There are three inflatable legs surrounding the two hemispheroids, and a protective shield on top to protect all the robot's electronics. The bottom hemispheroid is made of a highly flexible elastomeric material, while the top hemispheroid is actually made of nine layers of different materials, each with a different elastic property, which results in a structure that transitions from highly flexible at the bottom to fully rigid at the top. So you're probably wondering how the hell this thing actually works. You'd think setting off essentially a bomb in the center of a robot would only end up with broken robot all over the ceiling of the lab. Well, you'd be wrong. The way that this soft robot generates movement is first, the robot will inflate one or two of the legs to tilt the robot in the desired direction. Next, a small amount of butane and oxygen are injected into the empty cavity between the two hemispheroids where the two gases are mixed and then ignited. Now, if you weren't aware, when an explosive gas is ignited, it's going to expand outward in all directions, and it's going to do it real quick. Due to the bottom hemispheroid's flexible material, the bottom of the soft robot is going to expand and balloon outwards, pushing against the ground. But since the top hemispheroid transitions to a rigid structure, it's not going to be able to inflate. So all of the power from the combustion is going to be forced 
downwards towards the bottom hemispheroid, pushing it against the ground and launching the robot into the air. Just like the soft jumper robot that David designed. Except instead of using air to cause the movement, we're using explosions. This explosion is no joke either. It's got enough power to propel the jumper to reach up to six times its own body height. What? That's wild, guys. How many times your body height can you jump? I again watched the video of this thing jumping, and it's absolutely amazing. I know I say that a lot, but this time I really do mean it. I posted the video on Instagram. Go check it out and try and tell me with a straight face that that shit is not amazing. The researchers must have had so much fun making this robot. I'm not gonna lie. I'm a bit jealous of them. I've never done anything this cool. Oh my gosh. So many amazing robots have come into existence, all thanks to Professor Bertoldi and her many collaborations. But with so many great projects, it's hard to choose a favorite. I think, you know, each collaboration is unique and each collaboration yeah. has its own um, unique feature, right? And each collaboration is very exciting because it brings in new elements, maybe from the School of Design, from large scale, it might be from the material science or from the robotic aspect. So yeah. each collaboration is a lot of fun. I can imagine. Yeah. You guys have had so many fun things come out of your lab, like the the snake Kirigami bot. I absolutely loved that. That was so much fun. I actually had a dream about it the other day that I saw it going through Harvard's campus and it was late for class and it didn't know where to go. Um, so I've been thinking about your, your projects a lot and I absolutely love them. Yeah. If it's not obvious by now, I was more than a little excited for these interviews. Is Dreaming of science experiments wrong? Well, if it is, then I don't want to be right. But with that, we come to an end of our episode. There is, of course, one last question I ask my guests before I go. And before you hear the question and judge me, let me say that these interviews were done during the middle of winter. So it made a lot more sense to ask at that time. Ironically, this episode is now being posted in the middle of summer. But you know what? I'm doing my best, guys. Let's hear what Professor Bertoldi has to say. It's the last question I'll ask before I go. I ask it to every one of my guests since this is a Boston-based podcast. Is there anything specifically about Boston that you love in the wintertime to do? Most people don't love Boston in the wintertime. I'm one of those people. But do you have any activities that you and your family like to do during the winter in Boston? Yeah, well, summer is better than winter, right? <laughs> winter, I mean, yeah, I love, I mean, what I love, skating and skiing. Okay. Now, I'm not sure this year how much we'll be able to do. The skating, I mean, typically I take the keys to Frog Pond, but this year is closed. So yeah. No, we'll manage. Oh, man, it's going to be a different winter. Yeah, we are thinking about building a small um, ice rink just behind our house. So let's oh, see how the project... Oh, very cool. <laughs> yeah, you'll get your new Kirigami shoes and test them out. <laughs> exactly. It's going to be a testing platform. You got it. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> not a bad idea. I hope that they ended up actually setting up that ice rink. It sounds fun. If COVID shuts down your fun, you just have to make your own. David, on the other hand, has his own reason to love Boston in the winter. So you said you're from Canada, so you're used to the cold and you're used to the winter. But is there anything about Boston in the winter that you like to do? Um, anything specific about wintertime in Boston that you love? 
Yeah, sure. I, I think the scenery here is amazing. I'm from Montreal where the scenery is kind of prairies, right? Not not the, the prairies like the Midwest here, but it's kind of flat and, you know, farmlands. Here it's so beautiful, all the forests. So I, I do enjoy, you know, going on hikes. I mean, there's not a lot of big mountains here, but I kind of live close to Mount Wachusets, which is not that far from Boston. And this is so pretty in the winter uh, to go there for a hike. So, yeah, I really enjoy it. For sure, the scenery in Massachusetts is just amazing. Just amazing. That much I agree with, David. Boston is truly amazing. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. And, of course, a huge thank you to our amazing guests, David Melisson and Professor Katia Bertoldi. If you want to learn more about all the incredible work being done by our guests, you can check out the show notes, where I've added links to the Bertoldi Research Group and a bunch of the other topics discussed on the episode. You can see pictures and videos of the research talked about today by checking out the show's Instagram, BOS Science, and the show's Facebook, BOS Science Podcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at BOS Science to hear more about upcoming episodes and guests. And if you have any comments about the episodes, recommendations for who you want to hear featured on the show, or even just to send me pictures of the cool origami art that you've made, you can email me at bosciencepodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Today's episode is produced by the wonderful Josh Croats and is only here thanks to the support of Boss Science's wonderful patrons, Mark, Catherine, Chris, and Brittany. If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Science, where you can donate as little as $1 a month in exchange for awesome perks like blooper reels, behind-the-scenes photos, and, of course, the chance to hear your name on the show. But no matter how much money you have in the bank, you can always support the show for free by rating and reviewing it on iTunes, where there's a good chance that your review will be read on a future episode of Boss Science. So I see you're still listening. I'm impressed. Not many people make it through all my bullshit end credits, but you did. So, as a thank you for sticking around, I'm going to give you some extra secret science that all the other listeners who already tuned out won't get to hear about. Okay, so we heard about literally dozens of amazing projects being worked on at the Bertoldi Lab. But none of these projects were the reason that I contacted Professor Bertoldi to come on the show in the first place. My first ever introduction to this group came when I found an article titled, are you guys ready for this? The Tentacle Bot. This is an octopus-inspired soft robot that can grip, move, and manipulate basically any type of object. I opened the article and watched a video of this handheld gripper wrapping around and picking up just everything. A mug, a walnut, a piece of paper, a heart-shaped box, even a real live crab. It is amazing. My mind was blown. So I immediately looked into more of the work being done at the Bertoldi Lab, and that's where I read about the Kirigami snake bot and the shape-changing metamaterials. And I was like, okay, I need to talk to this woman. But when it came time to actually interview one of her researchers, we had so many other amazing projects to talk about that I never even got the chance to ask about the tentacle bot. But that's okay, 
I knew when I started the show that there will always be some amazing project that I can't talk about in the episode. And as much as it breaks my heart, it's a sad reality I've come to accept. But if you want to go check out this amazing tentacle bot for yourself, I've added a link in the show notes to the article that started it all. Just click on the link titled, only click this if you listen to the whole episode. I tried to think of something cute and catchy for the title, but that's all I came up with. Maybe I'll have a better title in the future. I don't know, man. Like the rest of my life, I'm just making this shit up as I go along. Okay, guys, that's all I got for you today. I'll see you all on the next episode of Boss Science, where I talk to some wicked smart people and learn about some boss-ass science. Bye! Thank you.